0: So we pray as we come to this God's Word together. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you love to speak to us as we attend to it. I pray that you would speak to us this morning as we attend to this story, this last part of Gideon's story. And might we hear you very clearly speaking into our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, anyone who has ever competed in sports knows that um, finishing well is difficult. You you can have the right genetics, you can put in the hours of grueling training, you can have all the right kit, but when you hit mile 20 of the marathon or uh, you're in minute 80 of the football match or whatever your equivalent in your sport might be, your whole body is screaming at you. Stop, let up. Relax. Slow down. The the twinge in your calf at the beginning of the race, well, at mile 20, it's a full-blown cramp, isn't it? The um the lead you have over the other side suddenly becomes an excuse for Just relaxing a a little bit now. They can't possibly come back in these final few minutes, but of course we've all seen the matches where exactly that happens, and perhaps we've been party to them. And what a great disappointment that is. To finish well in sport, you have to stay focused on your goal. uh, Through to the end. Through to the victory. Through to the personal record. Or you'll soon find yourself making excuses. You'll soon find yourself slowing down, and possibly even entirely giving up. And and what's true in sport is no less true in life. You know, no one begins a marriage believing it'll end in divorce. Of course not. Uh, No one starts a job intending to be fired for misconduct. Well, that would be silly. And no one who professes Christian faith, expects to one day walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, all these things do happen. All these things do happen, and although I'm sure there are exceptions, more often than not, these disappointing ends come about due to a gradual decision drift, a a gradual mission drift, as it were. What starts out as our goal, our dead set goal, becomes an optional extra and then is soon uh, disposed of entirely. And I think that's what this last installment of Gideon's story is meant to show us. Uh, In Judges 8, it's meant to show us that however great Um, the heights of our spiritual journey have been. However powerfully God has used us in the past, however much admiration we might receive from others, we will not finish well in life if we allow our priorities to drift from God's own priorities. It's true for the church. It's true for us as individuals. And so we'll work our way through this chapter under uh, three main headings. The first is this, the danger of mission drift, in verses 1 to 21. The danger of mission drift. Over the last two weeks, we've witnessed something of a transformation in Gideon's character. You know, when we first met him two weeks ago, he was hiding in a wine press from the Midianites. He was uh, timid and afraid. He was making every excuse that he could possibly think up to get out of the mission that God had called him on. And when God called him to act as a deliverer for his people, he said, no thank you. No thank you. But God kept patiently repeating himself, and um, he even did a few miracles to reassure him. And eventually, ever so slowly, this timid Gideon begins to trust the Lord's promise. And then last week, with our guest preacher, Aval, here, he spoke to us of how God delivered his people through Gideon, powerfully delivered him in chapter 7. God purposely weakened Israel, so they had thousands that had volunteered to fight. God said, no, give me 300. And he took 300 men, and he routed the Midianite army, the vast Midianite army. And and timid Gideon suddenly became triumphant Gideon. People were shouting his name, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And now as we come to chapter 8, this final installment of the story, we see that the war hasn't quite yet finished. Nearly, but not quite. Even after that God-given victory, Gideon and his 300 men are still in hot pursuit of the kings of Midian. At the end of chapter 7, they had killed the generals but the kings were still in flight Zeba and Zalmana but just as he chases down his enemies we see that the nature of the conflict has changed now rather than fighting god's enemies the mission has drifted and god's people begin to fight one another uh, First, Gideon meets the Ephraimites, one of the largest of the northern tribes of Israel. And they feel left out. They say, now the the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call on us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. They rebuked him. You see, for the Ephraimites, God's victory over their enemies, uh, that wasn't their goal so much. I mean, that's nice, but their goal was status. And never mind that God had just miraculously delivered them. Never mind that not a life was lost on their side. They wanted some of the glory. And they wanted bragging rights among the tribes. And because their own sense of pride was their focus, they failed to appreciate what God had done. But Gideon, ever the quick thinker that he was, he appeased them with what the proud always Uh, respond well to, which is flattery. Verse 2, he answered them, Oh, what have I accomplished compared to you? In other words, aren't you big, brave boys? Said Gideon. "We, We chased the enemy over to you, and then you killed them. Because you're the toughest. And we're told that at this, their resentment against him subsided. Uh, but it wasn't just Ephraim whose priorities were wrong. As Gideon moves on in his, in his tracking of these kings, they soon enter two other Israelite cities where the people have elevated their own goals, their own priorities over God's goals for them. Verse 4 says this, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted and keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give, me, uh, give my troops some bread. They're worn out. And I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and, and Zalmanah in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? And a few verses later we see the people of Peniel say exactly the same sort of thing. Now, think about this. Why would why would people who God is trying to deliver through this army deny the army rations? It's only 300 men. It's not going to break the bank. Why wouldn't they give them the bread that they wanted, that they needed? Well, it seems to me the priority of, uh, of Peniel and of uh, Sukkoth was self-preservation. Uh, despite what what God had done already through Gideon and his men, the people of Succoth and Peniel didn't want to back the wrong horse. Okay, this battle's ongoing. It hasn't come to its conclusion yet. And so they're saying, we want to see you kill them before we give you anything, because what if they come back? And what if they don't like that we supported their enemies? Never mind that Gideon was one of their own. Never mind that God had called him to deliver them. They were worried about self-preservation. And it led them to work precisely against God's goal. And yet, finally, and worst of all in this section, we see that far from being a noble hero, Gideon and his troops also had other priorities. They also changed their gaze away from the prize. Gideon replied, just for that, verse 7, When the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. And he went up to Peniel and said the same to them. And when I return in triumph, I'll tear down your tower, he says. Keep in mind, Gideon is speaking to his fellow Israelites. You know, these are God's people. These are the the same people that God has called him to deliver, to save Yet here he was, threatening them with violence and death, with torture and murder. And we see in verses 13 to 17, it was more than a mere threat. He comes back and carries it out in uh, exacting detail. He gets a young man to to record for him the names of all 77 of the leaders. And he goes and hunts them down, ticks them off uh, the torture list. God's people. Gideon's desire for revenge led him to completely lose the plot. Do you see that? He ends up punishing those he was sent to save. And in verses 18 to 21, when he punishes these kings who have killed his brothers, well, then he immediately goes out and kills his own brothers. It's a kind of madness. But you can see how he got there, can't you? I'm doing God's mission, these people aren't helping, so they're done for. He took his eyes off what God was asking him to accomplish and allowed his mission to drift. Uh, Although I don't expect anyone here to end up torturing and killing God's people, I do think there's a warning for us here. I do think there's a warning because whether it's a concern for status, like the Ephraimites, whether it's a concern for uh, security like the people of Sukkoth and Peniel, whether it's a concern for revenge like Gideon. We will lose the plot in the Christian life if we allow our own goals, our own priorities to take our focus away from God's goals and priorities for us. God's big plan, God's big plan was to save his people from oppression, from cruelty of foreign rulers. But by the end of the story, God's people are cruelly oppressing each other. In our era of salvation history, God's big plan for his people His big purpose is to save a people for himself out of every tribe and nation and tongue of the world to gather them together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Out of slavery to sin into freedom and life. Now that's the mission of the church. That's the mission he's given Resurrection Church to take part in. But how many churches become distracted from the mission? How many become distracted by their own agendas and end up, perhaps unintentionally, working against God's bigger purposes? What do I mean? Well, I haven't been in Hong Kong long enough, so maybe some of you could tell me what I mean, but I've been in another country recently, and I've seen how Christians have forgotten God's big purpose for their church. Uh, and so they've they built their churches around their personal priorities. Very often, in the country that I've come from, they love their beautiful ancient buildings. Uh, they want to preserve them, and that becomes the focus of everything. Right? The the committee meetings are about making the building look nice, repairing it, and so forth. And that takes money, so we have fets uh, and uh Car boot sales, and whatever else it is, so that we can get the money to serve the building. And God's big purpose for his church, which is to gather a people for himself, gets thrown out the window, gets lost, because our priority has become the focus. Now it's easy enough to point to how other Christians are failing, how other churches in other parts of the world are, are failing, but, and how they've drifted away from God's purpose. But the question for us is, have we, have we, has Resurrection Church become distracted by its own priorities and goals and purposes? Has it ended up working against God's priorities and goals? And purposes? And if so, how can we change? And on a more personal level, God's priority for each one of us is that we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. His priority is not the success of your latest business venture. His priority is not the exam results of your children. It's not even your own good health or mine. His priority for you is that you become like Jesus Christ and that I become like Jesus Christ. And He will use anything in our life to make that happen. That's God's goal. Is that your goal? Is that your priority? Is it mine? Gideon's story shows that it is possible to be used powerfully by God in the past, to be given miraculous victories by his hand, and yet quickly to drift away from his mission, completely lose the plot, begin working against him with our own goals. So let's stay on guard. The first point is the, the danger of mission drift. And then in verses 22 to 27, we see the disaster of spiritual innovation. Despite his failure to carry out God's purposes perfectly, Gideon is still recognized as a great leader by the people of Israel, at least the surviving ones. I guess the people of Peniel weren't voting for him, but uh, at least the ones that were still around wanted him. To be their king. And notice their reasoning in verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. Now if you remember the previous weeks, uh, if you've been here for the, the stories, to see Gideon or the judges that precede him, you know that the Israelites have precisely missed the point with this statement. Over and over we're told that the Lord has been the one who has rescued Israel from its enemies. And yet they say, because you have saved us from the hands of Midian. Even in their celebration of what the Lord has done, even in their adulation and exaltation, Israel forgets him. Gideon, however, has not forgotten. Gideon gives precisely the right response in verse 23. I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. If the one who saved Israel gets to rule Israel, then it is the Lord who must rule Israel, says Gideon. And, and some scholars, as I've been reading about this passage over the week, have argued that this verse, verse 23, is the heart of the book of Judges. This is the point of Judges, they say. It answers the questions posed by the book. Who can lead Israel into peace and prosperity which she's been promised? Who can defend her from her enemies? Who can order the national life around right worship of God? Only the Lord can do it. This is the center of the story. And Gideon gets it. And yet even as he gets it, even as he gives the right response, his actions tell another story. He taxes the people like a king in verse 24, the next verse. He enjoys the, the royal ornaments, the purple garments, the extravagant transportation, uh, blinged out camels in this case, of a king. He takes many wives like a king in verse 30. And then the kicker, verse 31, he names his son Abimelech. In Hebrew, that means The son of the king. He said, I'm not the king. But here's the son of the king. My son. Gideon says the Lord is king even as he helps himself to the trappings of kingship. But worse than all of that is what he does in verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Uh, Gideon, who, if you remember back in chapter 6, if you were here a couple weeks ago, established his um, service to God. He began his career with God by tearing down an altar of Baal. He destroyed it. It was on his father's land. It was his father's altar. He destroyed it and set up an altar to the, the Lord God, the God of heaven and earth. And then here, at the end of his career in the the book of Judges, we see him doing precisely the opposite. He creates this object of worship, and he puts it precisely where he had formerly established the Lord's altar. So what's going on? Did Gideon immediately forget the Lord who had delivered him, and set up a a pagan altar to a, a pagan god? Well, I don't think so. I think what Gideon did is, uh, Gideon wanted to worship the Lord in his own way. You see, God had already given Israel a tabernacle where they could worship him. He had already given them priests who, who would wear an ephod. It's an article of clothing. They would wear an ephod. They would go before the Lord, offer sacrifices. They would ask him of his will for his people and if Israel wanted to interact with God, there was an authorized place for that to happen. The Lord had made clear how he wanted to be worshipped. Uh, but Gideon wanted more. Gideon wanted to make a place of worship with a different way of worshipping God. And he expected the Lord to accept it. So he says, yeah, we can worship the Lord, but we'll just do it around this golden ephod in Oprah. But then, as now, the Lord only accepts worship which he has authorized, and spiritual innovation is a disaster. Gideon's innovation ends up leading the people away from the Lord, and so often we see the same. And just like Israel, God has given us authorized ways of knowing him, of worshiping him. If we want to know God, we can know him. We can know him through his revealed word. He's revealed himself. He's he wants to be known. Uh, that's where he makes himself known, how he thinks, how he acts. The, the evidence of his love is there for us in the scriptures. And yet, very often, Christians ignore what God has revealed of himself in the scriptures and think they can get to know him better through, well, you name it, pilgrimages, retreats, labyrinths, concerts, courses, seminars. Some of those are great, but if we want to get to know God, that's not where we go. All the while, ignoring what God has given us. What God has uh, authorized for us. And in the church, God has given us an authorized community in which to worship and to grow, right? A, a people to gather with, to build us up. That's the authorized place of worship. But how often do I meet Christian, S- Christian people who falsely believe they can thrive in the Christian life apart from the church? Uh, apart from the authorized community of worship. You know, they, they limp along in faith going from uh, maybe a Christian book to uh, a praise CD in the car. And if their faith survives, well, it will only be by God's grace because they are ignoring what he has given to them to build them up. I, I realize I'm talking to the wrong crowd. You've gathered here this morning. Well done. Keep uh, Keep gathering. But if we think we can thrive in the Christian faith apart from the authorized place of worship, how foolish. And we could go on. When we neglect the ordinary means of grace, the Bible, prayer, the church, the Lord's Supper, and we try to seek God through whatever means we've devised, whatever way we think would be a good idea, methods that he hasn't promised to work through, We're doing exactly the same thing that Gideon did. We're not crafting a a golden idol, but we're deciding to serve God in in ways that he doesn't uh, authorize. And it will become a snare to us. It will prevent us from finishing the Christian life well. Spiritual innovation can lead to disaster. Disaster. But then finally, uh, the last section of these verses, verses 28 to 35, show us the importance of remembering who God is. Verses 28 uh, through 35. Here we see the record of the last time in the book of Judges. We're not even halfway through, mind, but this is the last time in the book of Judges that the land enters rest, that the people have peace. Uh, The downward spiral that we saw at the beginning of the book of sin that leads to oppression, that leads to crying out, that leads to God raising up a deliverer and delivering them and giving them rest, well it entirely breaks down here. We're not even halfway through. So it gets worse. And hereafter each judge is worse than the last. Hereafter infighting amongst uh, God's people becomes more violent. Hereafter, the drift becomes further and further away from the goals God has for his people. And in the final verses of chapter 8, I think we see the reason why things go so badly off track. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berit as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. You see, the Bible says that the Lord God is a covenant God. He makes a covenant with his people. That means far from being distant and unknowable, he wants to be known, he wants to be in relationship, he wants to be in a covenant with us. If we're not sure what covenant means, think marriage. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. It's a a bond of love. A bond of love and duty. And when a man and a woman get married, they are joined in a covenant relationship. And God says, I want to be with my people in a relationship like that. One of relationship where we're, we're growing together in love. The covenant is meant to bring them closer to Him, to make us more like Christ, as we we spoke about earlier. And just as it would be unthinkable for a bride and a groom to get married and then on the wedding night to go and spend the night with another partner, it would be unthinkable for us to enter into this covenant relationship with God and then go and worship at other altars. And yet that's precisely what the Lord's people do here. In verse 33, we're told that the people set up an altar to Baal Barit as their God. Baal Barit, Barit means covenant. This is the covenant Baal. So God is a covenant God. He wants to be in relationship with his people. But the people say, we want to be in relationship with Baal. Who hasn't rescued us. We want to enter into a marriage kind of relationship with this God. Who's done nothing for us. And so it comes as no surprise that as the chapters unfold in the rest of the book of Judges the people are becoming more and more like the cruel oppressive chaotic god Baal and less and less like Yahweh like the Lord himself. They they've shacked up with the wrong guy. Uh, the one who hasn't rescued them. But let's learn from their mistake. God has rescued us, and He has made a covenant in His own blood with us. In the shedding of God's own blood, of Christ's blood on the cross, He has made a way that we can come into relationship with Him, know Him, become like Him, experience His love. And it's not something that just happens in the distant past. It is... A covenant for today. For all people who will take part in it. Who will willingly come to him. And receive from him. And he's given us a way of remembering that covenant. And we're we're going to take part in it later in this service. You remember Jesus' words at the Lord's Supper. At um, the Last Supper. In the Gospels, don't you? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so everyone who comes to the table of the Lord is invited to be part of the covenant people, uh, to remember God's saving love, and to become like Him as they follow Him. So let's not ignore the means of grace, the ways that God uses to draw us to himself. And if you don't, if you're not quite sure if you're in relationship with this covenant God, well maybe today is the day. Perhaps this Lord's Supper is his call on your life to say, come, be part part of my covenant people today. Receive the cup of my blood and the bread of my body. And do it in remembrance of me. So shall we pray? Father God, we thank you that you love us. That you want to be in a covenant relationship with us. A marriage-like relationship. Where we experience your love and become like you. I pray that whatever strongholds we might have in our own hearts, whatever resistance, whatever altars we're worshiping at, that you would help us to break them down, to come before you, and to again receive the goodness of your love for us shown on the cross. Please might uh, something in us shift this morning, and would we honor you the way that you have asked us to, worship you the way you have authorized us to with our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen.